0: I went home and kind of
1: wrote out all the ins and outs of my ideal contract and sent that back to them, when apparently they saw it and were like, oh, shit.
2: <laughs> Mainly because my father was disgusted with it, and that made me so happy. Welcome to The Imposterous. The Imposterous is hosted by me, Graham Drew, and Michael Knox, two rather insecure frauds who will be exploring the motivating and debilitating experiences we all have with imposter syndrome. With a sneaky suspicion that it might just be your superpower, if you let it. I, I,
0: I really do think it's important. You know, everybody should be doing something. You need a personal kind
2: of purpose, don't you? You need to be something that really floats your boat. If you know the rules of the game, you can win. Hi, Michael. Hi Graham. <laughs> See, that was good. You go first, go on.
1: <laughs> well, it's funny so far.
2: Yeah. Afternoon, Michael. How are you, sir? I'm good, Graham. How are you today? Fair to middling. Wearing a, a hoodie top was three sizes too small for me. It does.
0: Um. It, do, it does. look quite good. I knew maybe you should make that a regular.
1: <laughs> I remember you both looking gorgeous when I was looking at you.
0: That's very good. <laughs> hey Graham, I wanted to. Um. I've got a guest on today, which is you know usually what we do. When we talk about this subject. And I wanted to tell a bit of a story to begin, if you don't mind. So today we're talking to Sarah Barclay and we'll have more of an introduction, but I want to tell a story. So when I first started in advertising, my first job in creative within a creative team was sitting opposite Sarah and her then partner, Tony. And early on in that time, they'd cracked one of their many great campaigns, and we'll talk a little bit about those. And one of them was this quite famous Yellow Pages campaign. They went on to win lots of awards, and I forget the actual circumstances around it, but um, me and the guy that I was working with at the time, Nick Mills, um, were, we contributed to that, and as a result, we're credited. And I keep this annual, when Can Lions was, I'll get it out from underneath my laptop, an annual, when it was <laughs> this thing. It's hand me store underneath my laptop. Well, you know, I, I like to keep my laptop at an optimum camera to eye level, and I use this from the year 2000. So this annual is celebrating its 21st. And on this particular page, which no one else can see, you'll see a a campaign of some great posters just there. I can. They are big yellow posters. And when you look at the credits, now here (laughs) is the peak of imposterism coming up. It lists my name first. (laughs) 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 So I've had to carry that... What a fraudulent thing that is, Um, and how amazing it is at the same time. So I thought, if we're going to do this series, and I'm going to get a bit off my chest and kind of start to feel good about myself, why don't we start talking about where it began with uh, Sarah Barclay, who's our guest today. Welcome to The Imposterous, Sarah.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: So to give you an introduction to Sarah, so Sarah recently, and depending on how quickly we get this episode to where how recent recent is, was inducted into the Award Hall of Fame, which is a huge achievement, very well deserved and many congratulations from us all here. Sarah went on to work at the Campaign Palace and then at Clemenger in Melbourne, Sarah and Tony and Sarah with other people that she worked with, some very well-known campaigns, taglines like Sigma Rex. Rex. And Not Happy Jan. Some great work for Milk, some legendary stuff, as they'd say, and then went on. New York, which is, of course, where you would go to work at BBDO, Saatchi & Saatchi, and then at JWT. So, Sarah, I'm sorry for the long introduction, but welcome to The Imposterous.
1: Wow, I sound great.
0: You are. (laughs) So I want to ask you, my first question is, you have a career of many highlights and some ads that stick. And I want to talk about Not Happy Jan and even Sikkim Rex to a degree, but particularly Not Happy Jan. And it's referred to, and I've referred to it probably half a dozen times in the last thirty seconds.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: How do you how do you go with that? Do you embrace the the fame, or did you embrace the fame that was attached to that, or did you kind of shrug it off and kind of I don't know say I was lucky, or hmm. how, how do you how do you go with something that's that well known?
1: Funnily enough, that was probably the last ad that um, we did, Tony and I did before we went to New York. So. The Not Happy Jan going into the vernacular happened when we weren't here. So we would only hear sort of things from friends who'd take a a shot of a newspaper headline. I remember one vividly that was um, Not Happy John when John Howard was uh, our prime minister. Very sad times they were. Um, So we only kind of heard from other people that it had sort of hit the Australian vernacular. So um yeah for the 20 years I was in New York it was just by hearsay but when I did come back occasionally and I remember one other time when um we came to visit my my parents in Byron uh there was a a mayor called Jan and the opposition to the mayor had printed up all these t-shirts with not with not happy Jan on it so it had even traveled you know across the Parts of the country, and uh, even into a little country town that we're now, we now we don't find ourselves living in. So, um, yeah, it was it was nice actually to be away, and and then to hear that it had taken off like that. Jan, Jan, where's our ad in the Yellow Pages directory? Keep calm, count to ten. One, two, three. No!
0: Do you think with um, with hearing that and, and people acknowledging the work that you've done, the confidence that comes with that grows and allows you to, I guess, find the you know, platform to, to speak up more, more freely? We In talking to people, we've been wondering about how the, the quality of work that you produce and how that actually feeds into the confidence that you feel about the work and how that on plays and through your career.
1: Well, ironically, when, you know, the meme became the thing, um, we had created that without even knowing what a fucking meme was and it had become a meme and then, of course, everyone was tasked with coming up with another meme or the more hideous uh, version of that, the viral video. So, um, yeah, kind of in, when I was presenting to clients and trying to sell ideas... You know, I would use some of my past experiences to um, to tell them how well how different it was back here, but also how um, if you just let the the creatives do their thing, that magic can come from letting them from trusting them and letting them do that thing. Which, of course, became harder and harder over the years in my twenty years in New York. <laughs>
0: So, had there been times then in 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 those times where you would look around the room and think, "Why are these people listening to me? Like, how did I get here?" And
1: um, I can honestly say that a lot of the time I was sitting there wondering how they got to be there and why they weren't listening to me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, I, no, Michael, it's the complete opposite. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> <That's
0: good. laughs> well, if you could pass their names on to Graham, we, I was fucking I,
2: great. <laughs>
1: I mean there there were times and there was a particular instance without naming names but when I was in a particularly toxic male-driven oh wait that's pretty much all the time, (laughs) male-driven creative leadership department and these men were just so awful to deal with that Momentarily, I remember questioning my sanity and my ability, and uh, and then I got over it because I realised that you know they were just these toxic people that you know we were thrown in with. So, yeah. Do do you think it's got
2: better? What experience? Do you think? Because I mean, undeniably, and obviously, it's still going on. You know, the the whole toxic masculinity Uh thing. Do you think it's got better or do you think people um, have just got better at hiding it?
1: It's getting better. When I first arrived in New York there was a, a well, in 2000 and 2012 I think it started, the 3% um, hmm. uh, machine, which was 3% of the, uh, the CDs in the US at that time were women. That's in 2012. That was 12 years after I arrived. So I've been working for 12 years in an industry kind of going, why the fuck are there so many men in leadership and so few women? And, of course, the the data was there to prove it. So in 2012 they started the 3% um, conference and um, it crawled up to 29% in 2019. So, yes, in the US that has improved. I mean it's still glaringly um, obvious that it's not enough. I don't know what the stats are in Australia but I would has it a guess that it's probably not even 29 percent you know i i don't know the data that'd be a good little insert for the editor once you do know,
2: <laughs> do you, know? Do you know research and here are some stats from the workplace gender equality agency as of 2020 50.5 percent of all employees are women however only 18 percent hold ceo roles and 14.5 percent hold board positions in regards to CDs of advertising agencies in Australia, I'm still working that out.
0: I wanted to ask you something, Sarah, about just about work-life balance, if I could, because I I remember when we worked together, you were you weren't one to hang around and sweat the briefs, or or, or really. I I even recall you you were quite um, confident in the amount of hours someone should work. Uh uh-huh. How can I? How were you so prolific yet so balanced with your with your time?
1: I mean, they were different times then. This was before research fucked up everything, and I wish I'd invested in a research company back then. But th- these were the days. Like at the palace, I remember we had a ping pong table, and if we hadn't cracked the idea by lunchtime, then you know we basically may as well give up our day job. So we went from cracking ideas to lunch and then played ping pong in the afternoon. I mean, it was just like this beautiful, I don't know, this beautiful time where you were encouraged just to do the craziest thing, the craziest ideas, like to shock, to come up with wild things. And then the account people would be tasked with going to sell those things. And if they couldn't sell them, they'd be asked not to come back to the agency. So it was like this this very special time when that creative magic was nurtured and protected um, and then and then it all went to shit. So the work-life balance was, you know, I, I don't think I ever stayed longer than 5 o'clock when I was at the Palace and even at Cleminger it was, um, you know, it was just a different time. And then, of course, when I went to New York, then you had things like 9-11 and the GFC and... You know, I was probably in there was financial crises all the way through my time there. So that put the brakes on everything. So people got much more, um, you know, risk averse, I guess. And so your work life balance kind of changed a bit because everyone was frantic and uh, making you work long hours trying to answer briefs that really. You could have answered a long time ago, except clients were too scared to run with anything that wasn't tested, and so uh, blah blah blah.
2: <laughs> it does feel that um, you know you're talking about research and listening to you sort of saying like we, we work on the idea and then we play ping pong, and actually playing ping pong probably helps the creative process even more than just staring at a blank piece of paper. But the irony is because of research and everything else now, we're just kind of forced to sweat it more than, I, I find it's more more than ever these days. We, yeah. we try to sweat ideas out rather than the truth, which is that they they pop in at the most unexpected times. And, you know, that's the truth, isn't it? You can't put a clock on when the idea happens, but we try to.
1: Exactly what you said about creative not being an, a science um, and and to test it sort of just goes counter to what creative is. You know, you, you can't explain magic. It just kind of happens and it evolves. Like if Not Happy Jan, it was a collaboration between so many people <clears throat> and so many people getting on board and, and loving that spot and even Paul Middleditch when he found that window that wouldn't open all the way, like just beautiful little moments that you can't write into a script that just happen on the day and there's that beautiful trust between the client and the creatives and the agency and everyone holds hands and goes we're going to make this even better up when we shoot this and and unfortunately for most of the time in the US you had to do every single frame as was storyboarded and as was tested. So that magic has no place in, in any of that sadly.
2: And I think so much of that comes down to confidence doesn't it i mean the whole so much of the purpose of research is so that clients can have confidence it's just like well it's not my opinion look at the numbers and it's just like well how about you actually have an opinion well, and that's, stick with that wouldn't that that's, be better
1: that's exactly what we used to say you should just get rid of that you're yeah. department at the client and just go straight to the like just have the creatives or the the um the agency and the research company battle it out because if they're not going to use their gut instinct and support what they believe could be great, if they're going to handball it to research, then there is no role for them. So
2: when it comes down to that trust in your gut, you know, and I think that's a hard thing to do as a creative. I mean, having famous famous work really helps because you can sort of like go, well, I've done it before. And actually then people will tend to put more trust in you because you've got a bit of a track record. And, you know, you became famous pretty quickly with some pretty massive work in Australia. And then you went to America and I'm pretty sure the people in America didn't know about Happy Jan or Jan not being happy. <laughs> did you put pressure on yourself to go, okay, difficult second album? How did you kind of, how did you deal with that?
1: Yeah, I mean, that that was the challenge because we'd reached a level in Australia that, you know, it was we were flying high and then when we, went to America we thought that we could replicate easily what we had here but as I said you know probably a year after I got there 9-11 happened and I don't know whether Australia really suffered a recession but New York did and, and sort of London did and the whole northern hemisphere advertising industry yes. did so Tony and I were marched out the door along with every other um, non-American and uh and recession was everywhere and so um, it was, and I think from, from that, that point on, it, it kind of got more research focused, and as I talked about before, let more risk averse. And so it kind of tightened the whole industry. And then of course, 2008, the, another financial crisis. And I, I think in those times, the ties with financial stress, It's the natural thing for clients and everyone just to be more careful with everything and want to make sure they don't fuck up. So I think all of those things played into making it harder to trust your creativity and have others trust with you.
2: Regardless of all of that, you did manage to crack on and you've had an incredible career. And just recently, this is how up-to-date our podcast is, You've been inducted into awards hall of fame which is a pretty big deal and um and ironically given what we've been talking about you and faye davis the first females to even make it there which is um in itself interesting i mean how, how do you feel about that i mean obviously you know there's a sense of injustice about it but do you allow yourself to kind of enjoy it and go actually this is a pretty big deal. I've done a pretty oh, good job. Of I, course,
1: I, when I actually heard, I went, "Wow!" And, and it's also the awards' 40th anniversary. So, wow, no women in 40 years. And then they went on, "Oh no, we've only had the Hall of Fame since 2009 or 10 or 12 or something." So, but even so, um, no, it was very nice to have that recognition and um, and to meet Faye and and learn about her journey. Of course, which was quite different to mine. But um, yeah, I mean. I, I think the lack of women represented worldwide in everything from advertising to politics to business is a glaring omission and I think advertising is a reflection of that and it just so happens that it's been a very male-dominated industry and it was one of the reasons I wanted to get in. I remember that... um, margarine out um, you ought to be congratulated when I was at art college and I was just so angry <laughs> and I thought I have to go I have to try and change from within I can't just hate things from the outside
2: if you could go back to your 25 year old self what kind of advice would you give to her or maybe like give to other female creatives that are in that same place right now
1: hmm. I mean I was always a Ballsy kind of woman back then, so I didn't. Funny enough, I didn't feel um, that I was um, discriminated against as a, as a woman. It was just there weren't an awful lot of other women there. Um, I don't know. What my my advice to women who would like to get in the industry would be, yeah, just get in there because we just have to change this this imbalance. Um, and then to the women who are in there, I think. One of the things that I learned um, from working in the US, we used to they used to have a lot of committees and a lot of meetings about everything. Uh, and but one was actually quite good and quite relevant to all the women, and it was about supporting other women in in your agency. So I noticed in meetings you would often say something and then a few minutes later a, a a bloke would say it, and everyone would go, "Oh yeah, fuck that's yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's a really good idea."
2: What Sarah trying yeah. to say here is <laughs>
1: yes. So one of the, one of the tricks, and and this is just one example of, of how you can support other women, is just to, if if another woman in the room had said, "Oh Sarah, that's you know that's amazing. Yeah, I, I'd like to you know build on that, or you know to echo what you've said there," and so just trying to um to shift that kind of that voice in the room from because um, I think as women we have to be louder, we have to without being too aggressive or mean, but we just have to fight harder for everything to be heard, to be listened to, to, you know, to get into places. So as much support as other women can give other women it, it is great and necessary, I think.
0: Then, on that subject of getting in, did you get in by, or at a time, get a a job by um, putting a copy line and a pack shot, or maybe not the same combination, just a pack shot sometimes on a stock book of images? (laughs) And just to explain a stock book of images to our listeners, that was pre Getty when Getty was in hardback. (laughs) Getty 1.0 was a book. It was a book. It was a book you opened and you (laughs) tore a little bit of post it and you. This was a bit. I want to, Yeah,
2: did I you do that?
1: That book that you had the computer on the laptop on the can book. Yes. <laughs> um, I was trying to think where that might that myth might have come from. And when Sue Carey and I were at the palace, we did do a couple of campaigns that I know our then creative director wasn't um, enamoured with the the way that we would take stock photos and put a funny line on it, but. You know, one campaign was for Stella Artois and it was hilarious and it got into various books and stuff. So um, I, that was the only thing I can think of that um, that myth may have been started by because we we moved to Melbourne um, on some pro bono work that we did for condom ads, Mara Marich and I, way back in the day that we um Found this great little magazine called Hero, and and did these cute little uh, condom ads because this was the time of AIDS, and um, and then the palace saw them and loved them and hired them, hired us, but they were not stock photos. They were they were beautifully shot.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I know. I just uh, I I'd heard that story and I thought, wow, that's good. That just is kind of like you know, for you, I don't just have a book of six good ads. Here's a book of two hundred and fifty. So it's kind of just. <laughs> Thought that was a good story. Now, finally, we have a, a a tagline on the imposterous that we say at the end of every episode, which is, "You are creative, you are loved, and you belong." And I'm just thinking, I just we just like your opinion on it. Some kind of legendary stuff, magic to it, or, or whether you think that's a better line that might be more suited to a yoga studio.
1: <laughs> I did giggle when you said that because it sounds a lot like my yoga studio line <laughs> that I go to um
0: that's what graham thinks his lines a bit (laughs) shit
2: no i don't mind It's wonderful
1: i think you've nailed it i think it's gold um i would just say but i've never wanted to be loved or not really even particularly liked but just um as a creative you just want to be respected for you know this work (laughs) so i would have probably
2: just we're, we're also hoping that we can get some of the world's best copywriters to write us a line for our podcast so there was, there was that as well um, <laughs> um Sarah I think Michael was a little bit scared of this interview at the beginning because he used to be his boss oh, I think this has been a very good therapy session for Michael
0: I don't I don't even think I was um I don't know cognizant enough of anything at that age to you know creative department to think anyone was my boss
2: Is that because you were loved and you belonged at the time?
0: (laughs) No, I just think I was naive and ignorant.
2: I was just waiting for the bar to open, you know.
1: (laughs) Ah, those days.
2: Sarah, that was awesome. Thank you. Yeah, thanks.
1: Our pleasure. So
2: interesting. So cool. And congratulations on all of the things. Yeah, amazing. Congratulations, Sarah.
1: I hope many more women follow. (laughs) Cheers, guys.
2: Thank you very much for listening to The Imposterous. Apart from our fine, imposterous guests, none of this would have been possible without the help of the following wonderful frauds. Firstly, Andrew Stevenson at Wheel Love Jam Studios, best music and sound house in Australia. If you would like to catch up on all the other podcasts in The Imposterous series, visit theimposterous.com. Here you can also get in touch with us via email. The knee was gay we turn night to today